And so we didn't meet last week, <clears throat> so we're going to now look at the text uh, that we had uh, even on our hearts back then. So, so here's kind of a warning. Uh, this is a big passage, and if you have not come to church this morning asking God to reveal and open his word to you, um, you better start now, and you better do it continuously, because I'm going to tell you, I do not have a complete understanding of the text, and I sure don't have the ability to even explain the things that God has shown me. I don't have the words. The Lord is going to have to do something for us to get this uh, truth into us. So you better be praying, like really, like, Lord, show me. And as I confessed a couple of weeks ago, chapter 24 and 25 is a section of Scripture that a lot of people get excited about uh, hearing it preached on. Um, but I'm the one that's having to preach on it, and so I was actually dreading this. Uh, I'm starting to get a little more comfortable as we've uh, spent more time in, in it. Uh, but it was quite a daunting thing, and it continues to be that. Uh, last time we went verses 1 through 14. So this morning in a little bit, we'll pick up verses 15 to 28. And again, there will be some review. So you, read, you guys ready? Here's our review. Where to even begin? It's the Passover week. Jesus has finished his last public statements. He's not going to do any more public teaching. The last of that was to pronounce judgments and woes and anguish and sorrow. And, and, and basically, judgment is coming on the leaders of Israel. In fact, at the end of chapter 23, he spilled that judgment that's to be expected even over on the nation itself because they followed their leaders. Remember kind of why this will happen. What we're reading, why is it happening? Because the nation of Israel had more truth than anyone else, any other nation in the history of the world. They rejected that truth, so they had more truth, rejected that truth, persecuted the people that God sent to give them the truth, even so far as killing some of them. God sends his own son to them, and the nation of Israel will kill God's son within two or three days after what we're reading. This has been a long day covering many chapters, and now chapter 24 and 25 is going to be a private thing. You'll not see on the screen uh, verses 1 through 14. We're not going to reread all of that, but you ought to have your Bible open so that you can quickly refer to this. Jesus has told, he's, he's, he's pronounced a lament over the city of Jerusalem, and he's now leaving the temple, and he's telling the nation, the city of Jerusalem, the Jews in essence and its leaders, that the house, your house is being left to you desolate. The city being desolate of his presence as God, the temple being left to you, desolate to be your house, the house of Israel. You're going to get it your way. God is pulling away from the nation of Israel, and judgment is going to come. And then I believe, again, without rereading it all, there's something in the way Jesus leaves the temple that I think prompts some of the disciples to start like bragging about how great the temple buildings are and all the giant rocks and the overlaid with gold and marble and how beautiful it was and how important it was in their system. Again, not on the screen, but look at verse 2. He answered them, do you see all these? Do you not? You see all these, talking about these buildings. Very, verse 2 is very important. Jesus makes a prophecy. He says, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. There's not going to be. See this temple that you're trying to convince me how great and important it is? Jesus says it's going to be destroyed. That prophecy has been fulfilled in A.D. what? You guys tell me A.D. what? 70. So we know when that happened. But they didn't. So verse 3 is also a very key passage. Before we get down to our text, we need to quickly look at verse 3. Because as Jesus leaves, 
He pronounces the temple's going to be destroyed. They go down the Kidron Valley, up over to the Mount of Olives, and now they're three-quarter of a mile away looking back at Jerusalem. Look at verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples, in fact, Mark tells us who the four disciples were, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So look at verse 3. It's not on the screen. The disciples came to him privately saying, so they're going to ask a very complex question. Very complex. More than they have any idea what they're asking. Verse 3, they say, tell us when will, number one, these things be. When will these things be? And then number two, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they have a three-part question. As we talked two weeks ago, I believe in their mind, they think this is all one big event. Okay, the temple's going to be destroyed. That's probably when you're going to reveal your presence. And it'll be the end of the age as we know it, life as we know it. When is this going to happen? What will be the signs of this? Without re-preaching two weeks ago's message, I do want to emphasize the word coming. Tell us what will be the sign of your... So when will the temple be destroyed? That's part of their question. And then what will be the sign of your coming? You and I, because we know how things have progressed, we hear second arrival. We hear his return, arrival. But that word coming is the word parousia, right? And what that means, it has two meanings. The first and the primary meaning is the presence. When are you going to reveal your presence? And then its secondary meaning is arrival. Jesus is going to answer it according to his arrival. But I think they're asking it, when are you going to reveal your presence like you showed us on the Mount of Transfiguration? Because this was mainly Peter, James, and John who saw that. They're saying, when is this going to be with the temple? When are you going to show your presence? And when will it be the end of the age? And again, I'm not going to reread verses 4 through 14, but I want to quickly give you kind of a, a recap of our outline there. Do you remember it if you were here? We had three warnings. Jesus gives three warnings and four, I called it four commands, two are explicit, two are implied. The three warnings go like this. So what's the sign? When's this going to happen? What's the sign of all this going to happen? Jesus says false Christ and false prophets will be coming. So just anticipate that. Then he tells them that wars, famines, the other gospels add the idea of pestilences and sickness, disease, viruses, those are going to be coming, and earthquakes. All these things will be happening. And then he calls them birth pains. And we talked about how birth pains, once they start, they keep going, but they get more intense and more rapid as the event gets closer. And so we noted then that Wars and famines and pestilences and viruses and all those things and earthquakes have been happening for the last 2,000 years. They happen every day, so we don't want to overread one big event. This is surely the end of time. Be looking for when they get more often, more frequent, and more intense as that time approaches. When it does, you'll know you're at the end of the age, when Christ is actually not a rapture, when Christ will actually step down on the earth to set up the second kingdom his kingdom. And that's when you'll know that's getting ready to happen. So, by the way, my sister happened, to, her and her husband happened to watch a couple of weeks ago, and they went on and looked up earthquakes. But again, if you, you'd have to go back and look that. Uh, you would be surprised how many earthquakes have been recorded in the last year. Over 50-some thousand earthquakes. So be looking for them to get even more and more intense in the near future. The third warning was this. Persecution is coming. So you got it? False teachers are coming. Second warning, 
wars, famines, earthquakes, pestilence, it's coming. And then he says also that persecution is coming. And because of that, partly because of that, an apostasy is going to take place. People who project themselves as Christian and mingle among Christians, they're going to be quitting on Christ. They never were really saved. And there's really three reasons within the text why they will do that. Some are going to follow the false teachers. Some, when persecution starts, that's going to be, they don't want any part of that, they'll quit. And then some, it's going to be there in verse number 12, lawlessness and sinfulness is just too attractive, and they're going to go the sinful way instead of following Christ. You say, what were those four commands? The commands were this. Don't be led astray by the false teachers. Don't be alarmed and troubled by all these difficult, disastrous things that happen. Don't be troubled. The Lord's in control. And then what's implied is you keep enduring until the end. And then be proclaiming the gospel because the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world before the end comes. Now, with all that in mind, we're still not done with our review because we're going to do some on the other side of reading today's text. Now, look at verse 15. So, three warnings. Four commands. Here's the complex question. When is this going to happen? When is this with the temple? What will be the sign of your presence, your arrival, your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Very complex question. In their mind, they're probably thinking it's an event. Little did they know that it would be thousands of years apart in within some of the answers to this question. Now verse 15. So when, Jesus says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, parenthetical statement, this appears to have been spoken by Jesus because Mark also has that in his, let the reader understand, in other words, you're going to need an understanding of that prophecy that was given by Daniel in his writing. When you see this in place, in fact, Mark, Mark even says, when you see him where he ought not to be, when you see that abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, now verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. See that? Those in Judea, let them flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop, they would have flat houses. This is where they would go to relax, not so much a living room like you and I. Let the one who is on the housetop, here's the idea. When you see this abomination of desolation, flee to the mountains. How urgently, verse 17, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Don't go down and go in the house. Leave. This is urgent. Verse 18. How urgent. Let the one who was in the field not turn back to take his cloak. So you've gone in the field. You started working here this morning. You had your cloak on your outer garment. You've worked across the field. You kind of got, you know, sweat worked up or the day warmed up. You left your cloak over there and now you're over here. And when you see this event take place, don't even go to the other side of the field to get your outer garment. Flee as fast as you can. How bad is it? Verse 19. And alas, which means woe, sorrow, anguish, very difficult. Suffering is coming. To which group? Unfortunately, verse 19, Jesus is just telling it like it is. Alas for women, women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. 
If that time hits and you're an expectant woman or you have a nursing child, it's going to be tough. It's going to be very, very difficult. In fact, so difficult. Verse 20, Jesus says, pray that your flight, your fleeing, may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. So that those end up hindering your ability to flee and take flight. Pray for that in advance before it gets here. Because verse 20 and 21 is really the crux of the prediction. So when you see this abomination of desolation, verse 21, why the urgency? For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, Jesus says in AD 30. No, and never will be. It's going to be so bad, it's never been this bad from the beginning until now, and never will be this bad. Now verse 22. It's so bad, Jesus says, if and if those days had not been cut short, Mark tells us the Lord is the one who cuts the days short. If those days had not been cut, sh cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. What about now? So we've seen the sign. And they fled, and they understand how bad it's going to be. Then they fled, and they're in hiding. Now what should they do? Verse 23. Then, when you're in that hiding is the idea, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Jesus says, do not believe it. Why? For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. I need to read verse 24 again. Why don't believe it? If they say he's here, he's there, don't believe it. Why? For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Jesus says, see, I have told you. See, I have told you. See it? See, I have told you. Beforehand. In other words, I've told you what to expect, told you what to do, told you what not to do. Ball's in your court. You need to obey. Verse 26, he doubles down on what he says in 23 and 24. Verse 26, so, again, they're in hiding. If they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, pow, it strikes from the east and it shines all the way over the west. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You want to know about my coming? I'm telling you, here's what's going to happen. And then kind of a cryptic, hard to understand, little phrase here, a little figurative language. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Well, we can understand that. We can picture that. Would you notice three things with me this morning? We're going to spend most of the message on the first point. I'll go ahead and warn you there. And it's really just kind of springboarding from verse 15. Number one, the sign of Daniel's prophecy. Let's talk about the sign of Daniel's prophecy. They want to know, when is this going to happen to the temple? What would be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus says in verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then do this and don't do that. Do this, don't do that. And you need to understand what, what he's talking about. And he says, let the reader understand. And maybe that was Mark and Matthew adding that in. If so, the Holy Spirit led both of them to put that in. You need to have an understanding of the sign of Daniel's prophecy. All right, guys, so here's the You ready? 
Verses 15 to 28 are going to be a key part to answering their questions. When is this going to happen with the temple? And what's the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Here's my question for you as we're kind of now still reviewing from two weeks ago. Which one of those questions does verse 15 to 28 answer? Which one of those questions in verse 3 is Jesus answering in verses 15 to 28? And this is where I want to remind you, very important, we need to be gracious, and I'm going to ask you to be gracious with me as I continue to go through this and learn. I'm going to go where the Scripture takes me. I'm not going to go where some things I've been taught. I want to know why I believe what I believe, and I'm going to go where the Bible takes me. You guys have learned enough about me to know that we're going to do that, even if we may disagree on some prophetical things. And so here's the thing I want to point out. We must remember that when it comes to the Olivet Discourse, that godly people, good godly people, saved, love the Lord, who have learned far more about the Bible than I have or anybody in here, good godly people disagree on the interpretation of this text. So I'm going to quickly hit four of the main ones. There is a group that when they study this, they read verse 3, the three questions, and what they hear is all of Jesus' answer is about the tribulation that is still yet to come at the end of time. That's, their inter- that's the way they go. They dig in. That's not my view. Others say, no, the whole thing is actually about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. That's the whole thing, and they can all explain it using kind of symbolic language, and this stands for that, and that stands for that. That's not my position either, but there are some good godly people who think the whole thing is about A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem, which historically has happened. There's another view, and there's more than these four, but another view was this one. Oh, no, no. Jesus actually answers all three questions, but he begins by answering the destruction of the temple that we now know is A.D. 70. He begins by, by covering the answers to that, and some would say that's verses 4 through 35. And then starting in verse 36 to the end of chapter 25, then he answers the second two questions in verse 3. So there's that third view. And then there's a fourth view that's pretty prevalent is the Lord answers all three questions and the answers are kind of intertwined and interwoven together so that one verse may be answering one of the questions right beside it. Another verse answers another one of the three questions and the verse after it goes back to the, the first question again and it just goes back and forth and you have to kind of let it all play out and then we'll know which one actually applies to various ones. So here's your first real note other than the outline that I want you to write and this is a review one. I feel even stronger about this this morning than I did two weeks ago, having now studied 15 to 28. I feel stronger about this. Jeff, what do you think is your take on this passage, 15 to 20? Which, which question is Jesus answering here? I want to propose to you that it seems to me that verse 15 to 28 is like the prophets, so this prophecy of Jesus is like the prophecies in the Old Testament. Not all of them, but remember, we did this. Some prophets in the Old Testament receive information, revelation from God, and they pronounce it because what they're seeing in the future. But what they, these revelations, some of them had a very near fulfillment to either in their lifetime, shortly after their lifetime, but the same prophecy would also have a distant, can we say fuller, even greater, more specific fulfillment later down the road in the distant future. In other words, there's an answer here to part of this, but in a greater way, it's still to come. That's what I think I'm reading, and that's going to, I'll go ahead and tell you that's the direction I'm going to approach the text, is that, so which one of the questions is it answering? About the destruction of the temple in AD 70, or the end of the age and the second coming? 
I think you literally can pull things from all through this passage that answers both of those. And I'm going to take it from that perspective. Let's start here. To finish that note. Yes, you see the end of that? Some, I'm going to hit the other side in a moment. This is, this is technical, guys. I hope you're ready. You need to keep praying. Like, Lord, help, it's going, we're going to get, help me. It's going to get technical in a little bit. I believe, as, we, as you see in the note, some of the details in verses 15 to 18 definitely point to the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Some of the details. I deleted like two or three things I remember because I just had to get it finally down to too many pages, right? So I had to keep deleting down to still too many pages. I put down, I kept three reasons. You say, Jeff, why do you think this passage would be talking about what happened in AD 70? Here's one reason. I didn't have room to put it on the handout. Reason number one, if you would just glance, just glance through verses 16 to 20. You just kind of see that? Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The one who's on the housetop. That talks about the one in the field. Don't go back to get your cloak. Women who are pregnant. Women who are nursing. Pray that it doesn't happen in the wintertime. Pray that it's not on the Sabbath days. Guys, I'm going, I'm going to propose to you that that seems to be describing a time when people would have moved and traveled more by their feet or by an animal than by a car or by whatever vehicle we may have in the future when a greater fulfillment of this happens. So that wording there to me seems like it's talking about because they had flat roofs in A.D. 30 all the way up to A.D. 70. And they would have walked, so it would have been a very difficult thing. You think about it now, moving in the winter wouldn't, doesn't seem to me to be a huge problem. The Sabbath laws looked at very strictly back then are not as strictly observed by all Jews. So that would seem to be a less of a factor. Here's a second reason. Jeff, why do you think this kind of could be seen like those that are saying it talks about AD 70 and why are they right? I'm going to give you a second reason. Here it is. If you look at all this text and say, oh, no, the whole thing's talking about the future tribulation, then the question comes up, when did Jesus answer their first question about the destruction of the temple? Does he just not answer it at all? Because if it's anywhere in this text, it's verses 15 to 28. So to say that this is not talking about AD 70 means Jesus just blew off their question and doesn't even answer. I believe he does answer their question. But here's maybe another main reason. We need you to leave Matthew, put a marker there. Go over to Luke 21, because I want to propose that Luke's particular version of this text lends itself to a fulfillment in A.D. 70. So go to Luke chapter 21. It'll be very important to go there. Luke chapter 21. Please understand what I'm about to say. Hey, guys, I am not pitting one gospel against the other as if... One's right and the other, the other two are wrong. No, all three Gospels are correct. But remember, when each Gospel writer writes something, they don't have to write everything that Jesus said. To know the whole thing that Jesus said, you'd have to put it all together. So now watch verse 20. This, this seems so much bent toward A.D. 70 that I, I, honestly, a couple of authors that I read kind of treated this as if this was said on a separate occasion. And Luke, kind of just inspired by the Holy Spirit, puts it out of chronological order. Well, no. Again, you go home and do this. I've read Matthew, chapter 24, 25. It's all the same stuff in the exact same order. Well, then why the different wording? Because Jesus also said what happens in verse 20. 
So the beginning of the passage we're about to read, 20 to 24, the beginning of it and the end is going to sound slightly different. And that's what I believe. It definitely lends to an A.D. 70 fulfillment. Look at verse 20. Do you remember how Matthew had it? Now look at verse 20 of Luke 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Oh, well that sounds like what happened in A.D. 70 when Titus' Roman army came and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. Luke writes, so Jesus said this, and Jesus said what Mark and Matthew write, but Luke has this other that was in addition to that. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that it, Jerusalem's desolation, has come near. And then it's going to sound familiar as what was said before. So already we've noticed where Mark and, and Matthew talk about when you see the abomination of desolation in the holy place, abomination and holy place have kind of been not substituted, but also expanded to include the abomination being this army and the holy place. We think holy place is the temple, and it is. But here it's, it's like Jerusalem could be seen as the holy place. So let's now read the whole thing. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So here it is. Judea, flee to the mountains. And he even adds, not only don't go to the city, he says, let those who are inside the city depart. So instead of this, he says, hey, you out here, get out. And you that are here, you also get out. Jesus said these words. Let those who are inside the city depart and let those who are out in the country and let not those who are out in the country enter it. Why? Here again, very familiar. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Now watch verse 24. They, he's talking about the people in the city. They will fall. This sounds very much like AD 70, what the Romans did to the Jews. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so I contend that you could definitely see, wow, that does sound like what happened in AD 70. Listen to what R.C. Sproul, because he believes, as you make your way back to Matthew. Let's go back over there. You ready? Matthew. R.C. Sproul believes that what we're studying today had to do with AD 70. And he also springs from that Luke 21 passage. And he has a lengthy quote I want to use. You ready? Sproul writes that Jesus' instructions as to what they should do in that instance, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the Jerusalem, city of Jerusalem surrounded by armies, his instructions as to what they should do in that instance were, this is key, completely contrary to normal procedures in cases of invasion. This is, very, this is the opposite of what they would think. This is the opposite of how they've been trained to think. Note, he writes, we're talking about AD 70. We're talking about AD 30. 40, 50, 60, 70. What's the mindset of people in that day? He writes, usually when a nation was invaded, the people would flee from the villages to the cities with the biggest walls. So, uh-oh, here comes an enemy army. We don't want to be caught in their path. They're big and they're bad. Let's go to the city that has the biggest walls. He writes, the walls of Jerusalem at that time were 150 feet high. 100, that's, that's high. That's a major advantage. That's the whole purpose of the walls. We're getting attacked. Quick, get in here. Close the gates. 
Get our armored people on top. They come try to bust through the gates or dig through the wall. We're going to be able to fire stuff down from the top. They have the high ground. They have the huge advantage as long as they have enough food and water. Now he continues. The walls of Jerusalem at that time were 150 feet high. Even the Roman army with all of its implements of war and military ingenuity had a Herculean task to breach the walls of Jerusalem in AD 70. So we think that's the place to go. Let's head to Jerusalem. That's why we had those walls built. But he continues. But Jesus told his disciples not to go there. Instead, he told them, flee to the mountains. Why? Because Jerusalem was not going to be a place of safety. And then Sproul talks about what Josephus has taught us. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he writes, Josephus testifies that when Jerusalem fell, when it finally fell and they, they get through the walls and through the gates and they're going in and all the slaughter begins, this is key. This is history. This is the way it really went down. From a person that was an eyewitness, Josephus was actually inside the walls during part of the siege and apparently exited just a little bit before the siege was finished. Sproul that says, Josephus testifies that when Jerusalem fell and was destroyed by the Romans, more than a million Jews were killed, but very few Christians died. More than a million Jews, but very few Christians. Why, we ask? He writes, they had followed the advice of Jesus. They had followed the advice of Jesus. That's a key thing. So here, remember, the, the Jews of the day, they did not believe in Jesus. They did not believe in the prophecies of Jesus or follow that. But it just so happened in the decade prior to A.D. 70 that God inspired Matthew, Mark, and Luke to be written. And these are being circulated around. And God and Christ's followers are reading this passage so that when they see the Roman army, they put two and two together and they flee. And so you could see how, hey, Jeff, you've kind of convinced me. I'm seeing it. This text is about A.D. 70. Well, sure it is. But is it all? There was a six-month siege. They cut off their food, and it was really, really bad for six months. People are dying, and we'll say more about that in a moment. Now we're in Matthew. So now, I want to take the other position. Definitely, it's talking about A.D. 70. Is it also talking about something that has not yet happened in the future? Write this thought. Other details appear to point to the future time of tribulation. There are other things within the text. I'm reading this a couple of weeks ago, and I'm like, man, that seems to point to A.D. 70. Well, that there causes a real problem. That doesn't seem like it's talking about A.D. 70. That seems like it's talking about a later tribulation that still is future for us, even here in 2022. So what are these other details? Guys, again, I had to delete some. I forget the ones I deleted. I kept the ones that I thought were maybe some stronger points. Say, so what, what makes you think it's talking about a time period still future? Look at verse 21. Here's a clue. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world. Okay, I can understand that can be A.D. 70. From the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Okay, wait a minute. Jesus is saying, when this fulfillment comes, when it's completely fulfilled, it'll be the worst that's ever been in the history of the world. For that to be true of A.D. 70 would mean that what happened in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 is worse than what happens at the end of the tribulation. And I don't know that. The sense that I get from Scripture is that three and a half years of, of great tribulation that takes place in the book of Revelation and other places is worse even than what happened in those six months in Jerusalem. So the phrase never will be would, mean, would not mean that 70 
A.D. was worse than what is still yet future. Write that note quickly. Here's a second clue that makes me think, okay, this is also looking to the future as well as the fulfillment of A.D. 70. Notice verse 22. Has a key phrase in there. Jesus says, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. You guys see that? No human being. It's going to be so bad that if those days aren't cut short, shortened, if they're just allowed to keep going and going as it was, there would be no human being saved. That, that seems very broad to me. That seems to me like it's not talking about just one city in Jerusalem. This seems, if you want to write the note down, like it's talking about a world, the worldwide nature of the tribulation that's going to take place in the book of Revelation. The worldwide nature. And if you look, all the supernatural disasters that God is sending as judgment on mankind all around the globe in huge portions and percentages of the population. You ought to read the book of Revelation. Just dying and dying and vegetation and animals and crazy things happening. Oh, add into that that the Antichrist is persecuting and hunting down Jews and Christians. Put it all together and it's like if God doesn't shorten those days, then there would be no human life left. So I don't think that's talking just, that phrase is not talking about just AD 70. But here's another reason, if you're tracking. This is, this is a little subtle. Even if that were talking about, even had it said there would be no Jewish life saved, then even if all the Jews that were inside the city of Jerusalem had been wiped out, if all of them had been wiped out, there were still other Jews in other parts of Israel and all around the empire that lived. They were not being killed like those that, in A.D. 70 in the city of Jerusalem. So this seems much broader than that. So it seems to be pointing to yet a future time. Let me give you another one quickly. The phrase in verse 24, look at it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform, see this, great signs and wonders to me. I know there may have been a few like this person was trying to do this, that, and the other in A.D. 70 and try to woo people here, follow me. But this seems much more to point to what's coming yet in the future as an instance, for instance, Revelation 13. So you'll see Revelation 13. You write in the note. Revelation 13 is a passage where there's this beast who comes up out of the earth. And then there's this other beast that comes up out of the sea. We know that the first beast is going to be the Antichrist. And the second beast is what we'll call the false prophet that throws a lot of attention and gets people to follow the Antichrist. Look at Revelation 13, verse 13. Watch it. It, the second beast, the false prophet. Look at the wording. This is coming. This is yet future. It performs great signs. The idea he, this, this beast, this person. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. We could have continued reading verse 24. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. In other words, it makes the, the Antichrist, the first beast, the second beast, makes the first beast image come to life and breathe and makes everyone worship him. That's kind of his job is to point attention to the Antichrist. How does he do it? By performing great signs and making fire come down and other things that he will do. Back to Matthew 24. You say, Jeff, what makes you think that, so you ready? I'm going to give you one more. What makes you think this is yet future? That the fulfillment of this passage is not just looking somewhat at AD 70, but also yet future. Go to our next passage that we're going to look at next time. 
So flip over there. We're just going to take a sneak peek. Notice verse 29. See with me? I know this is heavy, but this is where the Lord has us. This is what we're going to do. Verse 29. Notice this wording. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Right? So this tribulation happens. When you see this sign, flee, because it's going to be really, really bad, worse than it has been before now, and it'll be worse than, it, it'll never be this bad again. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So notice the word immediately. Look at verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then, so the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Here's Jeff. Why do you think this passage could be interpreted as looking far yet future from AD 70, even past where we're at right now? Here's why. If AD 70 totally fulfilled verses 15 to 28, then it should have culminated in the second coming of the Lord in power and great glory and the angels being sent out to gather the elect from all around and judgment would have taken place and we would have finished the millennial kingdom a thousand years ago. But that's not what happened. So we know this has not fully happened yet. Everybody thoroughly confused? I'm real excited about it. I've got to study this thing about 10 or 12 times, my notes. And so you get here one time and you're probably going, what in the world? Yeah. Okay. With all of that so far has been the easy part. Because <laughs> now I need you to go to Daniel 9. And I'm really going to fight it. I'm not going to dig in on Daniel 9. But we need, at least in obedience to verse 15, we need to have a, some understanding of Daniel's prophecy of an abomination of desolation that he predicted 500 years before. Hey, let me, so give, let me give you some perspective. In 1492, what happened? Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? And as far as the Europeans were concerned, the Americas were discovered. Longer ago than that is in Jesus' time is when Daniel wrote what you're about to read. So more than twice the time of the age of our country, twice as old as America, is how much in advance Daniel had written what we're getting ready to read that Jesus is now referring to. And I'm going to have to give you some clues. And boy, and I, by the way, let me mention here, there are multiple interpretations of Daniel's abomination of desolation. Nobody knows 100% for sure, for sure exactly what it is. You may be sitting there right now and thinking, oh, Jeff, I know what it is. It's what happened in 167, 168 B.C. So here's Christ, 167, 168 years before Christ, this guy named Antiochus IV, this like Greek king over Israel, came in and tried to set up a statue of Zeus. They, they came down and, and had war with the Jews and took control of the city. And he, set up, he tried to set up this statue of Zeus in the temple. And then he offered pig on the altar and desecrated the temple. That was the abomination of desolation. Uh, hey, time out. That's not the abomination of desolation. That may have been a 
pre and partial fulfillment of what we're about to read, but it's not the ultimate fulfillment because you say, how do you know that? Because in Matthew 24, Jesus says, look for the abomination of desolation. Why would he do that if it happened 168 years ago? So throw that out of your mind. That's not the fulfillment. What is the fulfillment? And some of you, bless your hearts, you have never heard anything what, what we're talking about here, and you're going to be like, what? And I'm sorry. You're just going to have to go home and read it and get a good study Bible and dig into it. And, and I do not know this in any way perfectly. I'm going to offer you an interpretation. An interpretation. A conservative interpretation. A group that would be called the dispensationalist view. And by the way, I'm not married to any particular group's view of things. So here's the passage that we're told in, Mar in Matthew 24. Look for this. When you see this, then you flee. All right, now look at verse 24 of, Ma of Daniel 9. It's tricky. 70 weeks. So 70 weeks. The word week, those of you that know this passage, the word week means what number? What number is a week? Seven. Seventy sevens. We're going to assume that that's weeks of years. So there's seventy sevens. Seventy weeks. Seventy times seven we know equals 490. We're going to assume by all accounts these are years. 490 years. So here we go. Gabriel comes and answers Daniel and says, Hey, Daniel, listen, your prayer's been answered and God has spoken and revealed this. Here's what he wants you to know. Seventy weeks. 77s are decreed two things about your people, the Jews, and your holy city, Jerusalem. That's the two things that are front and center, the Jews and the city of Jerusalem. Six things are going to happen in these 490 years. Here it goes, the list. Why are these weeks decreed? Number one, to finish the transgression. Next, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring an end uh, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. 490 years, these six things are going to take place. When are these going to take place? Now, here's, here's another for clarification, a little hint. I'm going to slip in, before we read it, a hint on what I think is the interpretation. You're going to hear a prince referred to twice in the text one of the princes, the first one, is going to be called an anointed one twice. We believe, or I believe, many others, that is Jesus. But you're also going to hear another prince who is to come, another prince referred to. And we, I believe those are not the same person. This other prince that is to come, we would call that one the lawless one, the antichrist, the beast of Revelation 13. So now look at verse, there's 490 years coming, Daniel, and these six things are going to happen. It's going to be front and center in God's plan. is going to be the Jews and the, and the holy city of Jerusalem. These things are going to happen. When is it going to happen? Look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, so from that moment, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, Jesus Christ, my putting that in there. You need to have your Bible open so you'd know that I inserted there. If you're just taking my word for it, I put these little additions sometimes in the Scripture that you need to be aware that it's mine. And if you're not, if you don't have your Bible open, shame on you. Never take my word for it. But I'm trying to help us understand this in a short amount of time. 
So here we go again. Back up verse 25. I'll go faster. Here we go. Know therefore and understand from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. Now you need to really read the ESV note here at, at this because it's it, it kind of, the period would be removed. There's going to be an anointed one, a prince. How much time will elapse? The text says there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks. Note the ESV note that some of you have at the bottom of your Bible. It says, or there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It shall be built again. So seven weeks and 62 weeks. So there's going to be seven weeks of seven, seven sevens, 49 years. And there's going to be 434 years. Out of the total of 490 years, 7 times 70 times 7 is 490 total. We know there's going to be 49, and there's going to be 434. And then there's going to, you're going to see this other week, this other 7 years, is hanging out by itself. And perhaps there's little gaps of time between the 7 and the 62. And there's a definite gap of time between the 69 combined and the 1 that is left hanging by itself. Now I've already obviously moved from reading the text. I'm already interpreting it. Let's get back to verse 25 and see if we can get further without me yakking. Here we go. One more time. Let's try it. Sorry. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem... To the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks. It shall be built again, it being Jerusalem, with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So there's 69 weeks. There's 483 of them, 490 years. Now verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. He's going to be cut off and shall have nothing. What's that pointing to? The anointed one, this prince, he's going to be cut off. He's going to be killed. And he'll have nothing when he's killed. Well, we know because of the six things that need to be accomplished, if we're going to put an end to sin and atone for iniquity, then our anointed one, the Christ, needed to die, and he had nothing on the cross. But now here's where it gets tricky in the middle of verse 26. And, so pay attention, the people of the prince who is to come. So there's this prince who's yet to come, this different one that I believe is the Antichrist. His people, the idea of his ancestors even before him. So if the Antichrist is still yet future in 2022 AD, we're getting ready to read something that's going to happen by his ancestors before him. Well, we know the Antichrist is going to have this European descent and this Roman Empire. He's going to be over this revived Roman Empire. So now he's going to talk about what Daniel not even in a time of the Roman Empire is going to predict what this Antichrist people are going to do. Again, I've now moved from reading to interpreting. Let's try it in the middle. Here we go. And the people of the prince who is to come, his people, shall destroy the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, <clears throat> AD 70. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. We know that. It's talking about the city. Desolations are decreed against the city. Now verse 27 is going to come back. What about that 70th week? Isn't there one other week? There's seven weeks and there's 62 weeks. I thought there was 70. Now verse 27 is going to take our attention to what's going to happen in the 70th week, which interpreting this for you right now, for time's sake, I believe is still yet future. Now verse 27. And he, that prince who's to come, so his ancestors destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, 
He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. How long is a week here? How many years? Seven years. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Seven years. And for half of the week, what's half of seven? Three and a half. And for half of the week, three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And if we really had time to really stop and think and Bible study on Wednesday night, we would ask ourselves, this must be implying that the temple is rebuilt. Though it doesn't explicitly say that, it pretty clearly implies that because the temple will be destroyed. But then in this seven years later, halfway through, he's going to stop the offerings and sacrifices again, which means... They must rebuild it and start him again. Uh Uh-oh, but he stops it. So here at the end of verse 27. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator until he gets what's coming to him. Oh, wow. All right. For time's sake, let me read MacArthur's writing of this passage and let's quickly get to our second point after this. So here, here it goes quickly. All that I just said, he's going to put concisely. Here's what he writes. Of this Daniel's abomination of desolation, these 490 years. We ready? He writes, quote, and again, this is an interpretation. Other people interpret this differently. Quote, in other words, Daniel writes, 490 years would transpire before the Messiah would return to establish his eternal kingdom. He moves ahead. That measurement of the 490 years would begin at the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. He writes, the decree issued by King Artaxerxes. We know the king's name. And we know when it happened. 445 B.C. Everybody check it out. Watch. Israel was wicked and idolatrous. God used Babylon, wicked Babylon, to judge Israel, 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in. Nebuchadnezzar, his troops, destroyed the temple, tore it up really bad. Not as bad as the Romans did in AD 7. Tore up the temple really bad, ransacked the city of Jerusalem, took a bunch of exiles, made them go live over in his place for 70-some years. But then God raised up, having now spanked Israel, God raises up the Persians to judge and defeat the Babylonians. And God put it in one of the Persians' king's heart to say for, Israel, for Jerusalem and the temple to be rebuilt. We know that happened. King Artaxerxes does this in 445 B.C. So MacArthur's correct on his timeline. Now watch. The prophet Daniel also explained that seven weeks and 62 weeks, combined 69 weeks, would pass until Messiah the Prince, that's verse 25, he offers this. It has been calculated that exactly 483 years elapsed from the decree of Artaxerxes until Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he was acclaimed Messiah and king by the multitude. So that would be our seven years and our 62 years from this time, perhaps a little gap between the seven and the 62, but coming out to, man, this is like exact fulfillment of when Christ comes in and he's declared the Messiah, the presentation of Messiah to the nation of Israel where we've been preaching in Matthew for so long. Now, MacArthur continues, after that time, after the 69 weeks, after the 483 years, after that time and before the 70th week, so there's a gap of time between those, Before the 70th and final week of years, two things happen. The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. He'll die. 
and the people of the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, will destroy the city and the sanctuary, 70 AD. He writes, this is a picture of Jesus' crucifixion and of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. Then what will happen? Then the deceitful prince, now we're jumping ahead to the end of the time. He writes, then the deceitful prince will make a firm covenant with the many for one, one week, seven years. But in the middle of that seven-year week, he will put a stop to sacrifice. Write this note down if you're taking notes. That last week or that last seven-year period of Daniel's 70 weeks, 69, I can confidently tell you, ladies and gentlemen, have been accomplished already. In, up from the time of Daniel or shortly after the time of Daniel until the time of Christ, 69 weeks have been fulfilled. What about the 70th week? MacArthur offers that last week or seven-year period or the, of the 70 weeks will begin. When will it begin? When Israel makes a covenant with the Antichrist, thinking he will be her great deliverer. So there's going to be one who's going to come, this prince who is to come. He's going to offer to the nation of Israel a seven-year contract where, hey, I know you spend a lot of money of your budget on, 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 on military defense. You won't have to do that anymore. I'm going to take care of you. They're going to believe him. They're going to trust him. Apparently, they're going to think you're our Christ. That Again, I'm reading between the lines, but it seems they're then going to rebuild the temple and all excited about starting the sacrifices again. Halfway through that, he will show his true colors. He's going to do something that is the abomination, the abominable thing. And then he will be making the, the city of Jerusalem desolate. So all of that to say this, how are we to look at Matthew 24, 15 to 28? Well, I think it had a near fulfillment, and it also had a, has a yet future fulfillment back to Matthew let's go quickly and feel free to dig in Daniel 9 on your own time because we could seriously get lost there for weeks and we're not going to do it all right now I've got to hurry you said Jeff if we spend all that time on one verse and we've got 14 verses we're in some serious trouble should have brought us Snickers okay hang on number two Verses 16 to 22, what about when we see this abomination? So whether it be A.D. 70, we see the city surrounded, what are we supposed to do? Or yet in the future, when we see this abominable thing that the Antichrist is going to do, what, what, do, what do the people in Judea need to do? Number two, a time to flee. It's a time to flee. I'll not reread verses 16 to 22. Just note, you saw it, you heard it. This, guys, is a time of urgency. Get out. Run, no, 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 come down off the roof. Don't go get your stuff in the house. Don't go pack a bag. Leave. Your coat's on the other side of the field. Leave. If you're a woman and you're pregnant or nursing, it's going to be bad. You ought to start praying now that when this happens, that it's not during the wintertime and it slows you down. And it's not on the Sabbath day when restrictions and conscience or other people restrict you from moving. You better start praying even now. It's going to be really, really bad, such as has never happened in the history of the world from the beginning until when this takes place. So now, once again, I'm going to kind of start with an interpretation of AD 70, but then we will also allow for yet future interpretation of this. Catch what I'm about to say. These prophecies are being given. In the decade before AD 70, Matthew, Mark, and Luke is starting to circulate. Christians are reading the words of Christ. Most Jews do not accept Jesus as their Christ. They still don't to this day. 
They, they've heard about him. They know he came and healed a bunch of people and did miraculous things that could not be gainsaid. They were obviously tr- true and clear, but he died on a cross. And his followers say he was resurrected, but we can't see him. And his followers now have these books, and they're following that and his teaching. And, and they're really circulating that, but we're not doing it. Here's what happened. Israel kept causing trouble to the Romans. The Romans had enough. They come in to squash their rebellion. I think it, I don't, I don't quote me on my Roman history, but I think Nero commits suicide. Who's going to be the new emperor? So the Roman army has to pull back. They have a civil war among each other to decide who's going to be the, king, the, the emperor. I think it was Vespasian won the civil war. And then he sends his son now. Now we got to resume what happened with the Jews down in Israel because we got distracted, but we're coming again. Here they come this time in AD 69. The average Jew does exactly what they've been trained to do. Oh, we're getting ready to get attacked. They run to the city of Jerusalem, get inside the walls, way overcrowding the city, only making it worse. But thank God, many Christian Jews believed the scripture and remembered the words of Christ and they did not run to the city. They ran to the mountains and the wilderness. I wish I had time to dig in here, but I want you to write this thought because it's a quick preaching point. Write this down. So verse 16, when you see this, Jesus tells his followers, flee to the mountains. Don't do what everyone else does. Don't do what you've been trained. Write this note. Sometimes obeying God goes against our instincts but it is always good for us that is like a whole 15 minute point by itself ladies and gentlemen you need to remember this point sometimes obeying God goes directly against your instincts but it is always the right thing to do somebody's listening to me right now right now this is you Preacher, I know, I know God wants me to read my Bible on my own. I know he wants me to pray. I just don't have time. You're choosing to disobey the Lord. You need to cut something else out of your life and obey the commands of Christ. It may go against you. No, 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 you don't understand. I got to do this and I got to make money and I got to pay the bills. Here's another one. Jeff, I know the Lord wants us to give back financially, but I just can't afford it. It's going to go against your instincts, but you ought to obey what the Word of God teaches you. Here's one. If I obey the Lord, I'll have no fun in my life. Here's one. There's someone probably listening now or or listening later. Your instincts are telling you, me and my spouse, we just don't get along anymore. It's just we've lost what we once had. I think I want a divorce, and I'd just rather have the option of be alone, or I want to go check my other options That's your instincts lying to you. You need to obey the Lord. Don't obey your instincts. I'll go further. Praise the Lord for our streaming service. We put a lot into it because a lot of money and a lot of man hours, volunteer hours, and paid hours. But there are some folks who are getting this idea that because I can watch teaching and preaching online and hear the singing online, and maybe I even have fewer distractions and I seemingly get more out of it, that watching it on a TV screen is just as good as going to the house of God. That's your instincts. Do not listen to that. If you're able and you can healthily come to the house of God, it is God's plan for you to meet with his people. Do not disobey him. 
Sometimes it goes against our instincts, but you need to always obey the Lord. It may be life or death. For them, it was life. Jesus says in verse 25, see, I've told you. I've told you what to do. I've told you what not to do. You need to obey. Quickly. Notice verse 21. Look at it quickly. Why the big deal? Why the urgency? Why the rush? Why do we have to obey and flee and not go to the city like we've been taught? Verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world. Hey. This is what happened, and I believe this is what's coming, such as has not been since the beginning of the world. The effects of the siege of A.D. 70 were so bad that Josephus wrote, and I forget which author is paraphrasing Josephus' words, but it goes this way, quote, and this was a man who lived in part of it, so he knows how it went down. Josephus writes, quote, when the Romans were come to houses, to the houses, so they're in the city, and they're going house to house. When they were, and so no doubt fighting some military people, what's left. When the Romans were come to the houses to plunder them, they found in them entire families of dead men. And the upper rooms full of dead corpses. And that sounds like a quote. And you're thinking, Jeff, it's well after 12. I want you to picture you've been cut off. You live in a place and your food has run out. People are dying. Disease is spreading. There's not even enough healthy people to bury the dead. And so if people were to come to your house, your house. And remember, people from all over are coming in the city. You have a house. So who's in your house? Your extended family and friends. Come with us. We'll just wait them out. We've got lots of food. You don't have six months worth of food. You don't have water. Disease is running through. And when the Romans come to your house, you and your whole family is dead. And upstairs they find just stacked up bodies. That's what the Romans found. He also writes that Josephus says 97,000 Jews were captured and enslaved. But 1,100,000 died. 1.1 million. One out of 12 lived. 11 out of 12 died or were killed. Write this note. Verse 21, Jesus says, when it comes, it's going, to be, it's going to be worse than anything that's ever happened from the beginning of time until when it happens. This seems to fit. AD 70 definitely seems to fit. Here's your note. As you say, Jeff, but what about the flood? Man, that was an awful judgment. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Think about it. If you had to experience, you had a choice, and God says, I'll let you experience the flood, I'll let you experience Sodom and Gomorrah, or I'll let you have six months being cut off with famine and disease and starvation and terror. I promise you the one you would do the last is the one that is the long, drawn-out siege. And the one you would choose probably after that would be the three and a half years of great, severe tribulation that is yet to come. So yes, those were bad. Thank you. That note's good. As you're writing that, I'll, I'll share a quick thought from D.A. Carson. Talking about that phrase, as has not been before. Carson writes, the savagery, slaughter, disease... And famine. The savagery, slaughter, disease, and famine were monstrous. As I alluded to two weeks ago, mothers literally roasting and eating their own children. They were so hungry. Carson writes, quote, There have been greater numbers of deaths, six million in the Nazi death camps, mostly Jews, and an estimated 20 million under Stalin. That would not be all Jews, but 20 million there. Yes, there's been greater numbers of deaths, but never so high a percentage of a great city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. 
Now look at verse 21 one more time. One more time, verse 21. Here we go. Why the urgency, Jesus? For then there will be, a great, tribula- be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. I'm going to propose the way my understanding of Thessalonians and Revelation and other passages is that even as bad as what happened in A.D. 70, that's not going to be as bad as what happens yet to come in the future of three and a half years of great tribulation. MacArthur words it this way. Quote, although everyone on earth will be subject to his tyranny. Now we're talking about that being as it's never been and never will be as bad as what's still yet to come is what I think the Lord is pointing to. He writes, quote, although everyone on earth will be the subject of his tyranny, the Antichrist's supreme fury will be vented against Jews, regardless of their religious persuasion or lack of it, and also against Christians. Satan will use the body of the Antichrist, and Satan hates the Jews and he hates Christians. Why? These are God's people. And he's correct. Uh Uh-oh, he mentions a third group. Jewish Christians will be in the greatest jeopardy of all. Write this thought. Then I knew we wouldn't have time to go there. Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9. I think that's it. Zechariah, verse 13, 8 and 9. Go home and study it. What that text says is when it is fulfilled, two-thirds of all the Jews that are alive, whenever Zechariah 13 is fulfilled, two-thirds of them will be killed. You say, well, what happens to the other one-third? Praise the Lord. They will turn to God, and they will trust God, and they will obey God. And now we know what that means. They will receive Jesus Christ as their Messiah. But two-thirds of the... That sounds to me like the phrase that we saw in verse 22. No human being would be saved if this thing isn't shortened. Two-thirds of the Jews are wiped out. Only a third will live. It's going to be so bad. How that happens, I don't know. If you want to write out to the side, I'll give you another little quick thing to study in your own time. Revelation chapter 12 talks about a woman and a dragon. And it's pretty clear the woman is Israel and the dragon is Satan. And Satan's going to try to kill Israel in the tribulation period. But she goes to a pre-prepared place in the wilderness, a place of protection that God has provided for some 1,260 days, which just so happens to be three and a half years. And apparently many of them will be killed, but some of them will be kept alive. One last thought before we hit our third point. And the third point's the shortest. I got to give this. Y'all know, you get mad at me, I'm going to tell you what I honestly believe. Look at verse 22. It's important. It'll be so bad, Jesus says, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Are y'all thinking? Are you thinking, thinking, thinking? But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short because if it's not cut, if God doesn't shorten it, nobody will live. All these disastrous things happening to the sinful and the sinful being so persecuting and killing of the godly. If it just keeps going like it's, it will go, nobody will be alive. But God will shorten it for the sake of the elect. So what does that tell us? So listen carefully. I can confidently tell you that at least some of the elect will go through at least part of the great tribulation that is yet to come. What are you talking about, Willis? I don't like that. Okay, listen carefully. 
Bless your heart. Some of you that are like 40 or under, you'll be like, what was that? And everybody that above, like, oh, yeah. Um, verse 22 means at least some of the elect will go through at least part of the tribulation. So who are these elect? Wait a minute. This sounds like somebody I need to know. Who are these elect? Well, there's different theories. Let me give you one. Let me give you four. Quick. Here's one. Who are these elect that's going to go through at least part of the tribulation? Many people view them as church age Christians who will be alive when this happens. Church age. In other words, you and I. He said, Jeff, what about the rapture? Hey, wait a minute, Jeff, I don't see the rapture. Where's the rapture in this? I guess the rapture's a lie. No, no, no. Jesus doesn't explicitly talk about the rapture. He does apparently allude to it in John 14. But remember, this, the rapture is not to answer these questions. He's answering these questions. Later on, Paul will talk about the mystery of the rapture. He doesn't use the rapture word. But the mystery of us, his believers, being caught up. But now there's an, an element of believers, good, godly people that love God, that know much about the Scriptures, who believe, oh, yeah, you want to know who these elect are? It's church-age Christians who are going to be alive during that time. And some say they're going to go, Christians will go through, church-age Christians will go through half of the tribulation, and then they'll be raptured out at the midpoint of the tribulation. And other good, godly people believe it won't be at the midpoint. It'll be toward the end, even called a post-tribulation rapture position. Good godly people believe both of those. And so before you just dismiss them, you need to study and be open like, is there a chance? Well, for the sake of the elect, he's going to cut short the days. Now that I got your attention, what's the other views? Here's another view. These elect are going to be people all around the world that get saved during the tribulation. That's a popular view. Here's another one. These elect are the one-third that Zechariah was talking about who actually live. Here's a definite position, probably a combination of all the above. These elect are going to be the people that God has foreordained, pre-selected, will go into the millennial kingdom in natural bodies. Somebody's got to go in the millennial kingdom in natural bodies. It will be these elect. Now, who are they? Is it a combination of church-age people? Is it a combination of that and the Jew, one-third of the Jews? Those that are being saved all around the world. But yeah, some of the elect will definitely go through at least part of the tribulation. If that's not what verse 22 means, then please explain it to me in a nice brief email. <laughs> Number three, brief. Number three, there will be a time for discernment and patience. There will be a time for discernment and patience. All right, we see the sign and we flee. Now what do we do? Look at verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he, there he is, do not believe it. Why? For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. What's talking about here is a time that is needed discernment and patience. You need to discern. All right, we're in hiding. It's happened. Persecution's coming. We're hiding. Now what? You need to discern and be patient. Verses 23, you with me? Verse 23 to 26 describes an attempt by false Christs and false prophets to deceive people. They're going to try to deceive people. Verse 24 says that they're going to try to deceive, if possible, even the elect. 
Man, I wish I had time to dig in here, but I don't. Let's have the note. Watch. Those two words, if possible, if possible to deceive even the elect. You know what it means? It means the elect cannot ultimately be deceived. That's what verse 24 means. For false Christ and false, Jesus says, false Christ, you got to be careful. you got to be on the lookout because false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray. If possible, even the elect, they're going to try to fool me. If you're one of the elect, they're going to try to fool you. But the elect cannot ultimately be fooled and tricked and deceived. We may be slow to come to truth. And, and, and we may not understand all the truth. And we may have a, a wrong view on that and that that's minor things. I'll tell you one thing the elect will never do. They'll never be deceived to serve and worship a false god. We cannot. We cannot because we have the Holy Spirit. We've seen the truth. Now this doesn't stop Satan. He's kind of... I almost said the S word. I want to be careful of speaking about powerful people. He is ignorant. So he, he apparently doesn't know that we can't be deceived, so he's still going to try it. What's his technique? Well, he has a technique. Miraculous miracles. Deceptive miracles. Flip over if you would. Last place we'll go. 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. You want to see it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Very quickly. 2 Thessalonians 2. One of the ways that the false Christ and false prophets will try to, to trick and deceive is by deceptive miracles. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. Man, you really need the whole, whole passage, but let's just jump into verse 9. It's talking about the coming of the lawless one. We'll call him the Antichrist too. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. So Satan will empower him. With all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception... Who's going to fall for it? All wicked deception for those who are perishing. People who are perishing and dying going to hell, they'll fall for it. Why will they fall for it? Because they refuse to love the truth and get saved. That's why. So he's going to come and he's going to do all these deceptive miracles. He's going to fool a lot of people. You say, well, I'm one of the elect. Then you will not fall for it. Write this note. Miracles by themselves... Do not mean that someone is a prophet of God. Make no doubt, God used miracles in the New Testament time to validate who the true prophets were. Because we didn't have a Bible to judge people by. How do we know that what they're writing is the true scripture? God gave his prophets and apostles power, miracles. But now I want every one of us to understand, and the elect will understand. They'll hear and understand that note that you just wrote. Miracles by themselves do not prove and validate that a person is genuinely a true prophet of God. Satan can give false Christ and false prophets power to do seemingly miraculous things. So there's more to it that you and I need to evaluate a person by. But look, he does all these wonderful things over in Africa as he touches them on the ear and touches them on the eye. And he kind of talks funny. And he's kind of compelling and he's got a great broadcast. Yeah, so... How do we know if they're the true prophet of God or not? I did not have room for this note. Man, I wish we did. A true prophet of God is also, in addition to that, known by the truthfulness of their message. The truthfulness of their message. Number two, the virtue of their life. They're not going to be perfect, but the virtue of their life. Oh, is that a true prophet? Third, the fruit of their ministry. Just ask yourselves. Don't just fall. Wow, they did some seemingly miraculous things. They must be the man of God. Satan can cause miraculous things to appear. 
Ask yourself, does their message line up with the word? Do they live a righteous life? Is the fruit of their ministry that more people are drawn to Christ and love the Lord and worship God and serve God? That's how you know a true prophet of God. Now back, and I'm almost done. I know I've been long. Quickly, verse 22 and 24. Look at them. 22. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, Jesus says, for the sake of the elect, they will be cut short. Verse 24. False Christ, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Hey, guys, I want to encourage you. God is always aware of what's happening with his elect. You say, well, Jeff, hang on. What you said a while ago is kind of disturbing me. What if the mid-tribulation rapture people are correct and we end up going through like that first? Or what if by chance we're, we're kind of wrong and those that believe it is a... Okay, we're not going to argue about that. Just, just know this. Whatever happens in your life, if you're God's elect, he knows about it. He sees it. He cares. Well, he must not if he's letting him have no... Tribulation comes to God's elect. Persecution comes to God's elect. Many of God's elect have been murdered and killed and martyred. God sees it. He knows it. He cares. He controls it. He controls it. And we're like, how is that possible? Write this down. All that God does is for his glory and the ultimate eternal good of his elect. We'll see it in the future. You may, in the moment, these people will not recognize this can't be good for us. I promise you, once they're on the other side, they'll look back and say, wow, God used my tribulation and persecution and even martyrdom. And yes, he cares. I've got to give you J.C. Ryle's quote. Got to. Because someone is unsaved listening right now. Someone's perhaps wondering, these elect, who are they? And how do you know if you're one of them? Am I one? Am I not one? Okay. J.C. Ryle's so correct. He says, there breathes not, there breathes not the man or woman who can prove he is not one. There breathes not the man or woman who can prove that they are not one of God's elect. So does that mean everyone's God's elect? God's chosen? Nope. But he writes, the promise of the gospel is open to all. You say, I don't know if I'm part of God's elect. I don't think I've ever become a true Christian. Listen. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And he, the idea of anyone who comes to me, would you save me? I will not cast out. Romans 10, 13 says, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Guys, the gospel is open. Here's what you need to worry about. Is my calling, is my election sure? Do I know that I'm in God's elect? Have I put my faith and my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? You need to make sure that's in your life. Here's why. Judgment and tribulation is coming. It is coming. You say, what if it's not in our lifetime? You will die physically and you'll spend somewhere in eternity forever. Where is it going to be? It boils down to this. Did you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Whoever, everyone who does will be saved. That's all you need to know right now. Why do I get such an angry look when I do that? 
Amen. Verse 23. Jesus says, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ. There he is. Don't believe it. If they say, look, he's out in the wilderness or he's over in the inner rooms, don't go. Don't believe it. It's going to be so bad. God's people are just going to want to see Christ. We need our Messiah. We need our Savior. They're going, they're, they are in hiding, guys. It's going to be bad. And they're just going to go run to him. Where is he? We want to run to him. And here's what the Lord say: No, no, no. Your job, discern and just wait. I hear that he's, no, 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 no. If they say I've privately come over there, it's a lie. Don't do it. You just stay where you're at in that place of hiding. I'll let you know when it's time. But what if we miss you? What if in our waiting we miss your coming? Oh, you will not. How do you know, Jeff? That's what verse 27 and 28. Don't run out to them. Don't believe it. He's here. Is there? No, no, no. Don't you believe it? Verse 27. Here's why. Four. Four. Because as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. There's lots of things said in that text. Here's what we know. The second coming. Y'all with me? Watch. I do believe firmly in a rapture where the Lord calls his people up to him where he doesn't touch down. This is talking about where Jesus actually touches down on the earth and just obliterates the enemies of the world that have bottled up his people, particularly in the nation of Israel around Jerusalem. He will touch down and he will defend his people and his people will run to him. What does verse 27 and 28 mean? Let me give you a hint. You're riding down the road and half a mile ahead, you see a bunch of big old birds hopping and bobbling and a car went by and they flutter and they go back and they come right back and there's still a couple flying around the sky. What do you know is half a mile up ahead of you? A what? A corpse. Oh, there's a corpse. Clear as day. I know we're getting ready to see you. I smell him already. There's a corpse ahead. Clear as day. What is verse 27 and 28? If it means anything, it means these two things. The second coming of Christ, number one, will be sudden like lightning. Pow. Don't come out of your hiding place. I'll make it clear when it's time for you to come to me. What if we miss you? You will not miss me. You'll know when to come. It'll be sudden like lightning. And number two, it's going to be plain and clear and highly visible. Not like a rapture. This is what we're talking about. The second coming of Christ in power and great glory. Then you will run to me and I will defend you. Let's stand this morning. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Father, we, your people, this morning confess and that we acknowledge, Lord, would you cause all of my brothers and sisters to agree everything Jesus ever said is true. All of this, much of it has happened. And there's still more to come. We know that what your son says is true. Father, I pray for anyone that's listening this morning. If they need to make their calling and election sure, they've not yet settled in their heart that they have trusted Jesus, him only, not trusting their works or baptism or membership 
or trying to be good, but literally just trusting Christ, receiving the free gift of salvation. Father, if anyone has not done that, not settled that, I pray that you have this morning made their spirit and their minds and their heart very unsettled and afraid because of what's coming. And Lord, if that's the case, then cause them to come speak with us so that we can talk to them about how to make their calling and election sure as you, Father, give them faith to believe. And Lord, this morning I close as I pray for my brothers and sisters, those of us who know that we're Christians. Father, would you cause us to live today and this week how we would really wish we had lived if the beginning of this tribulation to come were to happen in 2022. Father, impress upon us because everything Jesus says is true. If it were to happen, if it were to really begin, I mean, these birth pains, more intense, much more frequent. It is clear that the end is near. Lord, may we today and this week be living how we will have been glad that we live, Lord, when that day comes. Father, may we be warning people in a loving way that they must place their faith and trust in Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.